Thank you, worship team. Thank you, church choir. Sounded, sounded really good to hear our praises to our holy God. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to 2 Kings 14 and 15 today, page 304 in uh, the Bibles here. I have to say it was just a little bit entertaining as you, uh, many of you came in the, the, the doors back there, kind of confused, like if you were in the right church or not. Nobody left to my knowledge. So, This morning as we look into this passage, um, I'd invite you to do a little bit of a look in the mirror, asking yourself first this question, do you tend to learn from the failures of others? Or do you have to make the mistakes yourself? I think we all have been in that second category. How much and how well do we learn from our own failures? Do we have a sensitivity to uh, our own sinful mistakes? As we look at one evil king after another in these passages today, we will see Six men who could not somehow learn from failure. As parents, I know we grieve when we watch our children make the same mistakes over and over, maybe hurting themselves, maybe hurting others. And on the flip side, there's nothing that gives us more joy as parents than to see a child recognize something about themselves and then adjust it with God's help and parents' help, especially younger as they are, and to see that growth. And if we can understand that as parents, I think we have a pretty good glimpse of the heart of God, of what he has been trying to do for his people Israel all these generations, and yet the sadness of what did not happen here. So let's not waste the failures that are recorded for us here today. So beginning with a king named Jeroboam in chapter 14, verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, keep in mind Judah was the southern kingdom, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, that's the northern kingdom, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one, that is this Jeroboam in verse 23, he was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebohamath to the Sea of the Arabah. In accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. If you notice in verse 23 and didn't get too confused, we are, we are referencing two Jeroboams. The first one in verse 23 is the historical one from 120 years before this one, the now king Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. The original Jeroboam uh, was the one who had taken the ten northern tribes of Israel and split off, split the kingdom on this really permanent basis. His sins became the standard of evil. And so 
19 total kings of the northern kingdom, the other 18 are really always measured by the original sins of this Jeroboam. And King Jehoash, now a hundred and some years later, for some reason named his son after that guy. And indeed, he was fittingly like his namesake. 41 years. This king we're studying here is, is the longest reigning king of any of the northern kings. Longest reign, 41 years. And the other thing that might bother us is how successful he was, though he is clearly evil, verse 24. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel. And if you, if you dig into the geographical references there, you find that over the last hundred plus years, battle by battle, Israel had lost little pieces of their land. This king got it back. Going back to the time of Solomon, never had the boundaries of Israel been this good as when wicked Jeroboam was in power these 41 years. So here's a wicked king, rules really long, really prosperous, really successful. And something inside of us says, is that right? Should God allow the, the wicked king to prosper? So here's the first lesson. I've listed several at the bottom of your outline, but here's the first one. God is sovereign over how long evil people succeed. You want a brief definition of God's sovereignty? It's that God doesn't answer to you and me. He doesn't have to explain himself. Sometime, and even in our text today, we'll see some hints at why God allowed him to rule so long and successfully. But it's not about being fair. Our, our, our entertainment and I think our social media culture is, is often appealing to this idea they call karma. As if there were some invisible force that will eventually make all things fair. Uh, and who doesn't like a little video of a guy yelling obscenities like this and running into a lamppost, right? So karma is kind of satisfying to us when we see someone get what it seems like they deserve. Uh, my friend, uh, Pastor Brian Thorstadt's most recent blog, urges us to drop the word karma from our vocabulary as Christians because it's not biblical, it's not Christian, it's Hinduism, and it's all about reincarnation, really to use Brian's words, that you will be a bug or a billionaire in your next life based on how good or bad you are. As if all things are eventually fair. You know something, as Christians, we need to realize even eternity is not fair. Stay with me. Eternity is not fair because you and I don't deserve to be there. No one is in heaven because... God is fair. The only reason we can be in heaven is because of God's grace and because his dear son, the Father's son, Jesus Christ, unfairly, unjustly hung on the cross, paying our penalty for sin, rose again, and if we put our faith in him, we can have eternal life we don't deserve. We can't be obsessed with the idea of fairness. Life isn't that way. Sometimes... We've learned as a congregation this week, life is seemingly tragically unfair. 
So what do we do with this? In our series of kings here today, six kings, we'll see moments when it seems like karma works, where somebody gets what they deserve. And there is, there is certainly the justice of God that is seen in, in snapshots throughout uh, Bible history as well as our day. But uh, how would you explain Jeroboam prosperous in spite of his evil? Um, you would think with all that prosperity and knowing about God that surely Jeroboam would have become this grateful worshiper of God because that's what God intends to do with his blessings. It's one of his ways to test us. We are tested both with difficult things and we are tested with blessings. Blessings are meant to guide us to gratitude. If that were the case, America would be a fabulously godly country because we have been so richly blessed prosperous, military might. You'd think that there would be just this revival continuously of gratitude, but we know it doesn't really work quite that way. So if Jeroboam was evil, not grateful, but yet successful, how, how do we account for that? Two things in the passage. The first one we've already read, and that is the first one is that God said so through his prophet. Okay, There's a, there's a place where we just accept God said so, kind of like some of us grew up, mom and dad said so. Do you see that in verse 25? He restored these boundaries in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai. God had said this would be this way, and yes, this is the same Jonah from the book of Jonah, uh, the one who was swallowed by the fish. We know nothing else about this prophecy. We don't know for sure when it occurred. My guess is that it occurred after uh, the fish with the digestion problem and after the revival of Nineveh. I like to think that Jonah turned his life around. I think he did because I think Jonah wrote Jonah. And it was part of his ongoing ministry that what he learned from failure actually became his ministry. Isn't that amazing? What he learned from failure became his ministry, but his ministry was evidently rejected. But Jonah's the one who told him that told this king that uh, these boundaries would be restored. So, number one, God said so. Secondly, we now see another glimpse into the heart and mind of God in verse 26. Why were they successful? The Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering, and there was no one to help them. Second reason is God cared about the persecution they were experiencing from these other countries. And since the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. Kind of like, doesn't matter that he was evil, God was doing something good. As for the other events of Jeroboam's reign, all he did in his military achievements, including how he recovered for Israel both Damascus and Hamath, which had belonged to Judah, etc., they're written in these other books. So God cared, and, and the man in the palace of Samaria was a spiritual zero, but that's okay because the plan of God was to show grace and bless his people. Second principle, sometimes God accomplishes good things through evil people. Um, Joseph of the Old Testament, remember, was 
treated so badly by his brothers, most of whom wanted to kill him because of jealousy. Eventually they sold him as a slave to Egypt, where he rose to become the prime minister and then rescue his dad and his brothers and their families. And at the end of the book of Genesis, Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph makes this statement that should really alter the way we think. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So it doesn't matter what somebody else intends. God, God overrides and can do good things through even evil people. You see, the focus in 2 Kings is always on kings, of course. But there's all kinds of regular folks in the northern kingdom. So we get this impression sometimes, oh, every king of the northern kingdom was an evil. Yes, but what about all the people? There were sincere people like you and me. And it doesn't really matter who, who the government is because God is watching over his people, his kids. The whole New Testament takes place when there was never a good or godly ruler in the Roman Empire or really even the local governments. And yet Christianity flourished. Persecution and a flourishing Christian uh, uh, expansion and, and planting of churches. I truly praise God for the news that Roe v. Wade is overturned. I think we, we celebrate that. We um, are so grateful for the lives that will be saved, the children who will be born. It is the answer to the prayers and work of many Christians for many years. What does the future hold? For America, in terms of moral and biblical values, we don't know. But we should not be living neither frightened nor somehow desperately married to the political news. But we do praise God that he has blessed our nation at this moment with something fitting his moral nature, and there will be and have been times where God allows something contrary to his moral nature. But either way, God is not wringing his hands, nor is the gospel uh, silenced, nor should we be riding the waves, though we can celebrate what he accomplishes and we can pray and grieve at times for what he allows and yet we need to be more committed to the scripture than the news so we live more confidently and less fearfully uh, no matter what. In the four decades that King Jeroboam uh, succeeded, God cared. And so many surely rejoiced there that God had relieved their sufferings in spite of who was in charge of the nation. As we move to the next king, we're going to actually skip one. We're going to skip what's in chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, uh, 7 rather, and pick that up next week. Uh, and here's the reason why. We're going to go to verse 8. The reason why is because this next king of chapters 15, 1 through 7 is, he's called Azariah here, his other name. He's better known as Uzziah. His story is much more completely unfolded in Second Chronicles. And we need to read and understand that life as well. You see, uh, through this study of 2 Kings, various times you may remember we've gone to 2 Chronicles for supplemental information. 
But here's the thing about Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles only addresses kings of the south or Judah because Second Chronicles is all about what's happening in Jerusalem where true worship is centered in the right temple and it's the covenant of David. It's God's promises that will continue from David on to Jesus Christ and that's the focus of Second Chronicles. And so sometimes we have supplemental information, sometimes we don't. Second Kings does both kings on both sides because God is at work in both kingdoms. And so sometimes we, uh, in this, in this uh, message today, we're going to focus on a series of northern kings, one after the other. So with that explanation, let's jump to verse 8 of chapter 15 about Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam. In the 38th year of Azariah, or Uzziah, king of Judah, Zechariah, son of Jeroboam, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned six months. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord as his father had done. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, the original one, which he caused Israel to commit. Shalom, son of Jabesh, conspired against Zechariah. He attacked him in front of the people, assassinated him, and succeeded him as king. And then he goes on to say, the other events of Zechariah's reign, short as it was, are written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel. So the word of the Lord spoken to Jehu was fulfilled. Your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel for the fourth, uh, to the fourth generation. Um, six months. Wow. Talk about sovereignty. There is, there is no difference really spiritually between Jeroboam and his son Zechariah. Both did evil seemingly to the same extent, yet one reigns 41 years, one reigns six months. God doesn't have to explain anything to us. A little brief note, though, about God's sovereignty in uh, verse 12 is that Zechariah's brief reign ended or completed the prophecy uh, of, uh, that was made to Jehu. Your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel. So let's rewind just a little bit so we understand what that's talking about. God's word is always fulfilled. In 1 Kings 10, we studied his great-great-grandfather, Jehu, who was the king appointed by God to uh, kill Jezebel and take care of really Ahab's household. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in accomplishing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab all that I had in mind to do, your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. So a prophet tells Jehu, this is what's going to happen. Now it happens. This is the word of the Lord, which is, he spoke to Jehu saying, your sons to the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. And so it was. And I quote the different translation than what you might be reading from here or what I have, it just becomes a little more clear because there's one little verb that really can be uh, translated, and it was, or so it was. In fact, it's the same little phrase that you'll find six times in Genesis chapter 1. When God uh, was creating, he kept saying, let there be, da-da-da-da, and it was so. Let there be sky, and it was so. Let there be earth, and it was so. Let there be the waters covering the earth, and it was so. Because when God speaks, it is so. We're supposed to get that 
impression. And that's exactly the little phrase or term that he uses here that God had spoken and said, it'll be four generations who will rule after you, Jehu. And it was so. Generation three was Jeroboam ruling 41 years. You see, God had a use for Jeroboam. He wanted to expand Israel's border. He wanted to deliver the godly people of the land from all this suffering. He had a use for generation three, so he let him reign for 41 years. God really didn't have a use for generation four. And he let him be assassinated uh, uh, after six months. And it was over. And God had kept his word and allowed evil Shalom, the next king, to assassinate and replace evil Zechariah. We don't always get to find out um, why some of the wicked prosper and why the innocent suffer sometimes so long. Why is Ukraine still suffering? Um, if, if I was God, I would have ended certain evil regimes long ago, but that's where we submit ourselves to God and say, God is at work accomplishing his plan in ways we can't see. Psalm 73, when you find yourself struggling with, why do the wicked prosper? I mean, that's right out of the scripture. That's Psalm 73. Just want to share a couple of uh, parts of that, because I know we all feel this. When I try to understand all this, why do the wicked seem to get by? Why do they flourish? Why do they win? Why do they, you know? When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply, the psalmist said, till I entered the sanctuary of God. We go, we go into his presence with those things. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? And suddenly both Jeroboam and Zechariah come into focus. Because whether it's 41 years or it's six months, surely, sadly, their destiny is the same. And we rest in his sovereignty. One month is the next reign, Shalom. Verse 13, Shalom, son of Jabesh, he's the one who assassinated Zechariah, became king in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned in Samaria one whole month. Then Menahem, son of Gadi, went from Tirzah up to Samaria. He attacked Shalom, son of Jabesh, in Samaria, assassinated him, and succeeded him as king. The other events of Shalom's reign, previous, and the conspiracy he led against Zechariah are written in the book of the Annals of the Kings of Israel. One month. You hope Shalom enjoyed his 30 days, right? I, was, I don't know why, it's kind of crazy, but I was thinking about the, the sign makers in the court print shop at that time. Never mind, it's not Shalom paint over it, Menahem, a month later. Four of the final seven kings of Israel are assassinated. That's where this is going. That's where evil takes you. That's when you fail to learn for failures how bad it gets. 
of the four assassins, two themselves were assassinated, and one was, the final one that we study another time, Hosea, was imprisoned, deported, and died elsewhere. Not learning from failure. But Shalom rules a month after his uh, successful assassination, and it says he had a conspiracy, verse 15. I don't know, you know, he, 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 might have, he might have been planning that thing all six months of Zechariah, the guy he killed, thinking he was so smart and thinking he'd get away with it. A conspiracy, it's thought through. We've all probably heard some of those dumb criminal stories and maybe enjoyed them, but some criminals are more brilliant than others, but here's one key trait in them all. They don't think they'll get caught. I assume, because if they knew they would spend most of the rest of their life in jail, you'd think you wouldn't do that. But there's a lot of foolish people in prison who are not thinking through things. Sin deceives brilliant minds. When we come, sin makes us irrational senseless. It speaks to the power of sin in the human heart. Adam and Eve lived in a literal paradise. Everything was perfect. All you perfectionists out there, they had it. One more fruit, the serpent Satan said, and this one will make you smarter. And they fell and were banished from the garden. Achan in Jericho was about to receive the windfall of the conquest of Canaan. But he was impatient, and so he took a bar of gold and some silver shekels and a robe that he saw and was executed for it. David's adultery with Bathsheba makes no sense. He had everything a king could desire, but sin nurtured in his heart. His lust infected his brilliant mind, and his family paid the price for generations. The prodigal son in the story would seemingly have had a secure future. Dysfunctional family perhaps, but he decided he wanted his inheritance now. He blows it, ends up eating with the pigs. When you see the sequence of life, sin makes no sense, except that sin deceives the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. So something makes sense that doesn't make sense. So we have to address the power of sin. Do we learn from the failures of others? So, Shalom assassinates Zechariah. And verse 14, Menahem assassinates Shalom. So how does Menahem fare? Actually, better. He reigns 10 years and his son gets to follow him up at that time, but he, did, he makes a real mess of the nation of Israel. At that time, Menahem started out from Tirzah, attacked Tifsa and everyone in the city and its vicinity because they refused to open their gates. He sacked Tifsa and ripped open all the pregnant women. So Menahem, who has committed an assassination to take over the throne, now 
continues his reign of terror, venting his rage on his own people. We aren't sure where Tifsa is. We assume it's somewhere, some village or something near Samaria. And uh, they refuse to open their gates to this new king. It seemed like this city or village voted against Menahem. They didn't want another assassin in the palace, so they just barred the gates when he came by. But they didn't, they made a bold move of resistance, but wicked Menahem made them pay. And he terrorized them by ripping open the pregnant women. Tragically, the unborn paid. Before he dies, he not only terrorizes his own people, but what else does he do? Look at verse 19. Then Pool, king of Assyria, invaded the land. Pool is another name for uh, the man we know in history as Tiglath-Pileser III, uh, well documented in, in uh, human history. Uh, Pool invaded... And Menahem gave him a thousand talents of silver to gain his support and to strengthen his own hold on the kingdom. Menahem exacted, where is he going to get the money from? Menahem exacted this money from Israel. Every wealthy man had to contribute 50 shekels of silver to be given to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria withdrew and stayed in the land no longer. So while on one hand, King Menahem was a real bully at home, a terrorist at home, destroying his own people, but he's got a fear in his own heart because there is an emerging superpower to the northeast, Assyria, and they are taking over one country after another across the whole Fertile Crescent, and now they're attacking, they're invading against Israel, and he says, I've got to keep my control, I've got to keep my power, so I'm going to buy them off. I'm going to pay them off. And he gives them a thousand talents of silver. That's a 35 ton shipment of silver. But where's it going to come from? Taxes, right? That's, that's always the answer. He taxes, and he taxes the wealthy, it says. A thousand talents is three million shekels, 50 shekels each. That's 60,000 families had to pay this tax for a momentary peace attempt. Can you imagine King Menahem's polling numbers about now? Not only was he hated in the village that he terrorized and sacked, but now he has taxed the wealthy and 60,000 most wealthy families of Israel are complaining about that. He's despised at home. He's obviously despised by this Tiglath-Pileser. But did the investment pay off? It seems so. It says, so the king of, with, of Assyria withdrew and stayed in the land no longer. That would make some sense. I mean, uh, if, you're, if you're trying to take over the whole civilized world, uh, and if someone's going to pay you money and not offer any resistance, you might as well move along. But it is interesting that uh, there's an inscription that was found an ancient Near Eastern inscription found by this Assyrian king about Menahem. And he said, As for Menahem, I overwhelmed him like a snowstorm, and he fled like a bird alone and bowed at my feet. So there was some kind of a subsequent defeat of Menahem who thought he could buy 
peace. And we'll actually see a couple generations later that the, pay, the money he gave them was completely wasted. Principle three from Menahem. Those who seek glory by controlling others end up despised instead. So here's a guy who assassinated Shalom, the previous king, terrorized the town, taxed the wealthy to pay off the nation. He was all about control. He wanted to be king. He's trying to keep his, his, his power and, and, and ends up being despised by everyone. People with authority and ego, I think, are some of the most despised not despised, rather deceived people on the planet. If you have authority plus ego, you've got the position and the ego, and you can fill it in with any politician, any authoritarian regime, anywhere, they long for glory, they want the applause, they want the honor, they want to stay on top, and they have this idea that somehow, if I'm on top, people will applaud and praise me and like me, and they won't. Um, People will praise you if they want a piece of your control. They will externally praise you. But controlling people are arrogant, often angry, often violent, typically abusive, and they end up being despised broadly. Those seeking glory by controlling others end up being despised instead. I think we have to all recognize that these traits are a piece of our characters. And wherever we would see in ourselves anger, not under control, where we'd see control being a goal, where we see our own character, may we submit this to God as a very serious thing. Because it only grows if not addressed. Seek the Lord because otherwise we will eventually experience the very shame we're trying to avoid. We will, fi- we will find the shame we're seeking to avoid, rather. That's Menahem and the, the sad lesson from his life. After Menahem... In the 15th year, verse 23. In the 15th year of Azariah, that's Uzziah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, son of Menahem, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned two years. Pekahiah did evil in the eyes of the Lord too. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. Guess what? One of his chief officers, Pekah, son of Remaliah, conspired against him. Taking 50 men of Gilead with him, he assassinated Pekahiah, along with Argob and Aria, in the citadel of the royal palace at Samaria. So Pekah killed Pekahiah and succeeded him as king. And by this time, we're like yawning at assassinations. It is, it is so predictable. So predictable that he is addicted to the same sins of Jeroboam, whatever that all, the idolatry that all involved. Because every king is ignoring the warnings of God to Israel. God invested and called five prophets specifically to the northern kingdom. After the big split, Elijah and Elisha, whom we have studied, 
Elijah and Elisha, the speaking, miracle-working prophets, were addressing the northern kings, Ahab and now these guys, Elisha, until Elisha passed away. And three of the writing prophets, we've already met Jonah, but also Amos and Hosea, are devoted to the northern kingdom. God is trying to get the attention of his people, warning them, warning the king, warning the people, please, please turn to me. Uh, Amos, this is, a, uh, this is a couple of snippets from a long chapter, it says one thing after another that God was trying to get their attention I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city, yet you did not return to me, declared the Lord. Did he not send rain because he didn't want them to eat? No, it's because he wanted to get their attention that they would return to him in their hearts. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards with your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me. The discipline of God, like the discipline of a good parent, is always about restoring and, and, and drawing someone back, getting their attention so, because you love them. But after a whole series of things that he tried, the prophet says this, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. If you've ever wondered where that phrase comes from, this is, this is where it's from. If you see someone, you know, prepare the end is near or something like that, it's, it's quoting Amos talking to Israel. You were warned. I reached out to you. The books of Amos and Jonah and, and uh, Hosea, I think, become more real as we picture the, these kings, these exact kings, uh, who are about to be deported and decimated as a nation. Why? Essentially, it wouldn't take advice. It wouldn't listen. Verse 27. In the 52nd year of Azariah, also called Uzziah, king of Judah, Pekah, son of Remaliah, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned uh, 20 years. Uh, the 20 years is probably, uh, he started out, in Gilead, where he gathered his 50 men who assassinated Pekahiah. And so it's probably the kind of a co-regency, and then he takes over for 10 years is the way uh, the chronology works out. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, again, like Jeroboam. Verse 29, in the time of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, remember, Pool, king of Assyria, came and took. So he didn't keep his agreement. That, that, that thousand talents of silver was wasted. He took Ijon, Abel, Bethmecah, Genoa, Kedesh, and Hazor. He took Iliad and Galilee, including all the land of Naphtali, and he deported the people to Assyria. So now, under Pekah, nothing has worked. Everything Menahem tried failed. 35 tons of silver down the drain. Tiglath-Pileser breaks any promise. A, makes a huge land grab, taking away the borders that God so graciously had given back and deported the people to Assyria. This is the first of several deportations. We'll, we'll um, look at a later, in a later chapter at kind of the wrap-up of the northern uh, kingdom where God 
uh, writes the story, God's prophet writes the story of really why this all happened once more. But people are being now judged by being taken out of their homes carted off to another country. That's just how kings took over, is if you take enough of the people away, plant them someplace else, they don't have power, take some of your other captives from other battles and go and plant them back in this nation and mixing up the... They don't get things together and they'll never give you a problem again. The sins of Jeroboam are churning and churning and the end is indeed near. Principle four, failure to take warnings is the path to discipline and disaster. Failure to take warnings. The core lesson is that they never listened. You know, really in so many ways, the whole scripture is telling us this same message over and over again. You can, you can choose life or death. You can choose God's favor, God's discipline, and it's, it's about the condition of your heart. I'd like to just share a passage from um, Proverbs 1. In Proverbs 1, the ancestor of all these kings, going back to Solomon, was writing to his son, but uh, Solomon was a, a great uh, writer and a, a poetic way of saying things. And so he wrote uh, as if wisdom were speaking, okay? Wisdom and uh, she, wisdom. Uh, but he's writing to his son because Solomon cared about the following generations. Unfortunately, Rehoboam uh, did not uh, do well. But he cared about his son. He cared about future generations. So he wrote this as if wisdom is speaking. I will make known to you my teachings. So it's, it's knowable. But since you refuse to listen and no one pays attention when I stretch out my hand, since you disregard all my advice and do not accept my rebuke, I in turn will laugh when disaster strikes you. I, that is wisdom, will mock when calamity overtakes you. Then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but not find me. You can't find wisdom. At some point, it's too late. Since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, since they would not accept my advice and spurned my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. So it's saying there is an eventual point where you can't respond. You've, you've done it. And God's patience is, is, is now become a discipline from which you cannot recover. And so it's, a, it's an urgent call to us because there'll be a time when the full consequences of stubborn, uh, foolish resistance to the, to the advice, to the counsel of God, whether it comes through a scripture, whether it comes through, a, through an enemy or through a friend, when we, when we are not teachable, there's eventually a bill that comes due. And you know, in many ways, we are kind of continually at this point each day because the nature of sin is such that any time we allow it to fester and defend it, it, it's, like, it's like flames taking over an area. So as we think of all those big and little decision points, will we seek God and his word? Uh, or will we do it our way? Will we defend the attitude that seems so uh, right? Will we 
get the revenge or at least seek it? Will we vent our anger? Will we cheat a little? Will we indulge? Whatever, whatever area of temptation or sin that we are contemplating to please ourselves, will we or will we learn from the failures of kings long ago, maybe friends we've known or even our own failures? On, on the flip side, I had to think through this list and say, what if Jeroboam, what if, what if he had responded to God's blessing and realized I am winning battle after battle. This must be God who has given me the victories just like my scriptures say. Like David. Like Solomon. This must be God. What if if Jeroboam had seen his success and became a grateful worshiper? How different would the story have unfolded? If, If Jeroboam had gone to Jonah and said, Jonah, This is incredible. You are telling me that I'm going to win these battles. Tell me more. What does God want for me? What if Zechariah, his son, after his dad Jeroboam didn't repent? What if Zechariah, his son, had said, my dad was evil. I'm not going to be like my dad. What if he had said, "I, I, I see these things in my dad's life that I can't be that person. And if he had sought out Amos, said, Amos, help me. I don't want to be that person. And what if Menahem, this guy who took the throne in a violent way, had come to his senses? Maybe at least when he felt the threat of Assyria, now he wasn't in charge. He wasn't, the bully thing wasn't working. What if, what if, when he felt the fear of Assyria, he had gone to Hosea and said, please, I don't know what to do. Do you suppose God would have delivered him without pouring silver down the drain? Because the story of Scripture, as we watch through the judges and through the kings, is that when someone humbles their heart before God and seeks his help on the helpless situations, it's amazing how God steps in and blesses, and he wouldn't have faced the loss of this humiliating bribe and the defeat and the deportation. So, you know, each of us today, t- tomorrow, and the next day are facing these little and big dis- uh, decisions of wisdom. Wisdom is speaking, God's wisdom is speaking to us. Will we hear and heed? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts are deceitful and uh, so we uh, sometimes feel so so justified about uh, a choice about an attitude about a, a temptation we feel defensive we uh, see what the world has we, we we want what they are experiencing short term never really considering what you have told us about your long term goodness, your good plan for us. I pray you'd help us to repeatedly, daily, come to our spiritual senses. Oh, Father, we can't, we realize our weaknesses and we cannot do that unless we return to your word uh, repeatedly. Give us the disciplines 
the uh, clarity of mind, uh, the humility before you, that we would continually seek you, find you, and experience uh, your goodness in the, in, the in the difficulties and the joys of life. Amen.